Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy's Show and Tell. Uh, this is Tom, and as you all know, Show and Tell is the show where we like to bring on cool guests to talk about something cool that they are working on. And today's cool guest is Kurt Reffling. And the cool thing that we're going to be talking about is Here We Used to Fly. So, welcome, Kurt. Hey, Tom. Pleasure to meet you, and thank you for having me today. Uh, yeah, no, um, it was funny. We were, You sent us a message a long time ago. It was like a month ago, all right? And, you know, things get crazy, but I saw this game, and I was like, you know what? Uh, you're all, as of recording, the Kickstarter for this project is going to be ending next Tuesday. But I was like, we've got to get this in because I like theme parks. And this may or may not deal with theme parks. It it very does deal okay. with theme parks. It <laughs> deals with theme parks. Okay, that's fair. All right. So, Kurt, uh, before we get too deep, uh, who is Kurt? Right. I mean, fair question. Uh, so, my name's Kurt. Uh, in this space, in this tabletop world, I am a game designer and longtime lover and player of uh, storytelling games. Once upon a time, I started in this space as a board game teacher at a local board game cafe, and that allowed me a beautiful opportunity to explore like the vast landscape of interesting design going on in tabletop right now, and eventually find my home in the more narrative storytelling side that I currently occupy. Uh, I uh, have a few designs under my belt, none of them exceptionally well-known. <laughs> uh, Knots in the Sky is a duet game about a traveler in a labyrinth, uh, and Feywater is a horror movie structured game about uh, underwater fairies and the mortals that they are tempted by. Okay, I, t- I think it's interesting to go from like teaching board games, so somebody who's obviously has a really, you know, analytical, understands rules and those those fiddly bits to kind of shifting over to story games. So what was that kind of, why sh- why shift that direction? Uh, that's a fair question because they're very different worlds. Yeah. Uh, and I still enjoy board games that are really uh, tactical, mm-hmm. uh, thick rule books <laughs> with a, a thousand little sub cases. Uh, but I think... Over time, what I came to realize is that I love that kind of elaborate, deep, thoughtful play, and I also love storytelling, but I love them both when they are they are in their most distilled forms, uh, and for me, sort of separating those two pieces of myself into, uh, <laughs> into these distinct but uh, different hobby areas, uh, it allowed me to more fully uh, concentrate on what I love about those things individually, which is strange because uh, I don't think a lot of people break themselves in half that way. Uh, but that's that's just where I find the most joy. Hey, I mean, yeah, you got to do what you like. So then talking about RPGs and story games, where did you start? Like what was Take Us all the way back? What, what games did you start playing and what games kind of helped influence the type of designer that you are right now? I kind of had two or three eras, I guess, okay. if you will. Uh, once upon a time, I was dazzled by uh, D&D. I had a friend of a friend who said, oh, I like to play D&D. And that was the first moment that it ever became theoretically possible. Uh, like, oh, someone 
I know does this, this extremely cool thing. I was an enormous nerd and still am, so extremely cool thing. Uh, and I eventually got a chance to dabble in, uh, dabble in a campaign. We were playing 4E, which probably contextualizes it. Uh, and that was great, but uh, I moved away. Uh, sort of disentangled myself from that world and then only re-entered it uh, with a weekly stop, drop, and role play event at the aforementioned board game cafe uh, where I got to meet a bunch of local designers doing like weird, cool things I'd never heard of before, uh, dabbling in these interesting, innovative designs that weren't like anything that I had thought about before. Um, and through that, over time, I came to find the rich world of indie design that I am very lucky to be able to participate in now. Okay. Is that, though, maybe I missed one. You said there was three eras, though. Okay, that's fair. So the final phase, I guess, happened only a couple years ago when I uh, I never considered myself a designer. I had made scenarios for dread i had uh dabbled in reimagining what certain elements of games looked like but it every time someone would ask me oh have you made a game which happened all the time at the board game cafe i was like no no i wouldn't do that <laughs> no that's not something i do uh and then eventually uh my friend alex roberts um posted a status uh alex is a game designer known for for the queen and starcrossed and she posted this status which was like hey what are you folks working on? Is there anything that you're sort of mulling over uh, that has to do with your lived experience? And I shared this idea that had been bouncing in my head for years, uh, and it was positively received by a few game designers because she's got this whole like circle of extremely cool people, and they said nice things. And I went, oh, <laughs> maybe I have to do it now. Yeah. Um, and here we are today, four or five games into designing stuff and one on Kickstarter, which I really never thought would happen, but here we are. That's awesome. So then, all right, so let's talk about this game then that's on Kickstarter right now. All right. Sure. So what's the elevator pitch for Here We Used to Fly? Here We Used to Fly is a narrative storytelling game about an abandoned theme park and the bittersweet nostalgia of growing up. It's a, it's a game that tells stories about these, these kids who have this beautiful day at this theme park, and then you're flashing forward and backward in time to, uh, to play scenes with them as kids and them as adults exploring the theme park's abandoned grounds. So it kind of oscillates backwards and forwards uh, from these two different eras in time, developing the relationships and the understanding of the place as you go along. Um, it's inspired by games like Wander Home and Fall of Magic, which are really close to uh, my heart as inspirations. Um, and yeah, I, uh, I'm designing it with, uh, I will just shout out quickly, Ian Howard, who is my co-designer in this affair. I, so I, That's awesome. So I, I was actually going to ask you what your inspirations were. So to kind of like piggyback on why those games helped inspire this game. All right. So I usually ask people like, what is the aesthetic of your game because there's this trend in games where people aren't necessarily buying games to play them anymore. They're playing them for the vibes. You're buying them for the vibes, you know? So like, what is the aesthetic and vibe of this game? I'm told it's got a lot of vibes. Okay. Vibes are, vibes are there in stroves. <laughs> <laughs> when we were looking to pair uh, the visual medium with the world that we were developing, we wanted something that, uh, 
We wanted something that could look at all kinds of little weird details, the things left behind, um, the strange architectures of these forgotten places. And we also wanted something that would be striking, just as these abandoned spaces are. Because, well, theme parks are a place that has a lot of people in them, right? Uh, there's, if you think about a theme park, you think about the rides, but you also think about the lines and the crowds. It's, it's like an, an inextricable part of the experience of these places. And so there's an element of this abandonment, this eerie feeling that this place was never designed to exist this way. And that sort of feeling of, of lost places and the discovery of things that were left behind, what's happened to them over time, that's central uh, to the way that we imagine this game. Um, and we're very lucky to be working with a few artists who've helped bring this project alive. Yantrai Neka is our uh, big like cover artist and did some absolutely striking work for the front of the book. We're also working with a couple of other artists who will be working on both like the character playbooks, which I haven't touched on much, but you get one for a child and one for an adult, uh, which like Voltron together to make your character. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and our uh, visual artist for the um, the attractions as well. So yeah, okay, okay. Well, a lot of talent. I'm lucky. <laughs> so here's some context for myself. I actually used to work in a theme park, Ooh. so I. I'm I, I'm getting the, I'm getting the vibes. So and I I totally understand like the whole idea of like like they're not meant to be empty. If you were to walk around a theme park, you know, in the early morning or at night when everybody's gone, there was just and it was off-putting. Uh so I and also I don't say there's this whole idea of this this like liminal space with things being empty. And I don't necessarily get that from this, like that liminal. I, I get more of like a bittersweetness. That's the idea. To this, which is kind of, which is, which is interesting. So how, why, why <laughs> games like, uh, what, why the, the games you mentioned, Wander Home, like what about those inspired you with Here We Used to Fly? So design-wise, there's a couple of pretty pretty straight through lines that you can trace from the development of this game and their points of inspiration. One of the things that I like best about Wander Home, and God, I love Wander Home, is that Wander Home has everyone, each session, essentially, you're going to work together to choose some prompts that establish the location uh, that you're going to spend time in for this part of your story. And I love that Wander Home created these spaces, but then also gave players the freedom to develop them into their own uh, ideas, into what they found most evocative, most appropriate, most pertinent. And so that element of shared world building is central to Here We Used to Fly. But so too are the scenes, which are the core of the gameplay. Um, Fall of Magic, which if anyone listening to this hasn't looked at Fall of Magic, it is the most stunning game uh, that exists visually. It's printed, hand screen printed on these beautiful scrolls. And Fall of Magic tells the story of this journey uh, to, well, I won't get too in the weeds, but essentially you move to a new location. And when you visit one of those uh, places in this location, that's your turn. And it has a scene prompt, like what happens at dawn or making camp 
or uh, the Fiddler of Barleytown. Some are more specific, some are more open, um, but all of them offer a little kernel to start with to build into your uh, your scene. It's a, a title card in a silent movie that would play before the scene begins. It's uh, It's a springboard of sorts. And I find that sort of creative constraint very helpful to me personally in what would otherwise be a blue sky space of play. Okay, so all right, so you're you like the idea, and I kind of get this from looking through the playbooks, the idea of being, I would I don't like the idea the term restricted, but more guided in the direction that you should go. Is that would you consider that a fair statement? Yeah, that's fair. I. Uh, Guided, like leading questions are my favorite thing. If there's a single mechanic in tabletop role-playing games I love, I love a good leading question. But I don't think restricting is a bad word either, because as is the famous adage, I'm not sure I know how to say that word. (laughs) There's a saying that says restrictions breed creativity, and I absolutely am a believer in that. Okay, interesting. So then let's say... Uh, It's like one of my favorite questions. So everybody sits down. You got your friends. You all are sitting down to play this game. So what feeling do you want to invoke in everybody around, evoke around, around the table? And then what does a perfect game of Here We Used to Fly look like? There's kind of three things that I want games to do. Okay. Um, and in a perfect world, I can get all three at the same time. Uh, the first is I want to feel something. Um, you feel different things in any game. Right, You can feel the thrill of drama when you roll the dice and try to find out a result. No dice in this game, (laughs) but that's a common thing in RPGs. You might feel uh, the tension of being uncertain what will happen. You might feel uh, a sadness of a loss. You might feel the joy of a victory. And all of that emotion is really, I think, what makes communal storytelling so beautiful in whatever form it takes. I also think it's nice to laugh. You know, there's a, there's a joy in uh, creating stories with friends, and I think it is hard to overstate the value of a good shared chuckle. Uh, finally, the last thing that is much more subtle um, is that I like that games make you think. And in the case of Here We Used to Fly, there is no tactical strategizing. There's no um, plotting out how to best a situation. But certainly, I think the themes can leave you with a lasting impression and and questions about what a space becomes when it's not the place it used to be. So in a perfect world, (laughs) I've circled around the drain of this, but essentially I think you laugh, you feel uh, a little sad or nervous or uh, just invested, and then at the end you're left with this impression of a special moment that you all shared together. Yeah, as I was kind of going through this, there's this overwhelming just in culture and society right now, is last 10, 15 years of companies and corporations trying to really capture nostalgia for consumers. Mm. And so this is nostalgia, but it's not like exploring like this one thing. It's like exploring like, like what that means to be nostalgic or to remember it, which I thought was kind of cool. So I appreciate that. Nostalgia is a powerful thing. In early playtests of this game, I often liked to joke that I was offering them a nostalgia generator 
of, yeah. of something that they never existed. <laughs> so they'd make something and then just be miss it, even though it didn't ever really come to be. Um, and I do think that that's a core of part of how this works. Even if nostalgia isn't real, it still feels important. Um, and you're totally right that it's this driver of capital decisions now. Remakes exist because of nostalgia. Um, and, oh, that's a rabbit hole you could go I down know, forever. right? <laughs> so before we do that, so let's talk about this game then. So what's the play structure look like? How do we sure. play this game? Um, it's a cyclical structure, which begins each, we'll call it a round, uh, by choosing an attraction as a group. Uh, the core of the game text includes a big list of attractions uh, that you can visit, each with a skeleton, a sketch, some prompts that might inspire you what's here. Um, you pick one, let's say the Hall of Illusion, which is perhaps full of mirrors and uh, a garden labyrinth and da-da-da-da-da. You get to pick from a series of prompts. Everyone works together to create what they think this place looks like, uh, talking about what elements you th imagine being there. And then after that, you move into scenes in this attraction's heyday. Um, all of you are kids, um, age not perfectly specified and uh and everybody gets a scene in which they're like the spotlight kind of like fiasco for those familiar with that it's on your turn you're getting a scene about you uh once everyone's had a scene as a child you flash forward to adults and you rebuild this place now deciding what's left uh looking at a different list of prompts which might be about the graffiti on the on the concrete or the animatronic head that's left over after uh, the park's been sort of gutted and then everyone has another scene as adults this is the same character uh there will be through lines to who they used to be but now they're a grown-up they're defined by different traits they're different people uh finally once that's done the cycle is over and you rewind back to your time as kids with another attraction. Keep going until you are happy with the story that you've told. Oh, interesting. So it's like you're doing, it's not like you just role play part of the game as kids and then you role play part of the game as adults. It's kind of a back and forth. Then. Yeah, the pendulum swings between the two eras. Okay, then, so this, so it basically... You're you're choosing this playbook. You're kind of creating a character, and you go through these prompts and leading questions. So this is something I did want to ask you about since we we just had this conversation a, a lot in our Discord lately. So this game doesn't have what we would consider like traditional RPG resolution mechanics. So it doesn't have cards. It doesn't have dice. These these randomizer elements. All right. Uh, so does this still make it an RPG? This is a dangerous question because yeah. it's the kind of thing I could talk about all day. Um, and just to demonstrate that point, I think you can't answer it without looking at the history of the hobby. Because, okay, let's just bear with me for a moment as we no, throw you it. No, go, you go ahead because <laughs> I literally, I don't have an answer for this. And I really did want to just hear what you have to say about it. So let's consider for a moment the term role-playing game. Uh, that term was developed in response to a different movement. It is a redefining of a trend that was established before it. When was that trend and what was it? Well, to understand that, 
we have to acknowledge that tabletop role-playing games originally emerged as a sort of offshoot from the then-popular wargaming that preceded it. Tabletop role-playing, role-playing games, were defined in opposition to war games because in war games, you're commanding an army. You are not a single person. You are a force. You are acting as a country, you are acting as a fleet, you are strategizing, you are tactical, and in a role-playing game, well, you're not a commander, you're not a fleet, you're a single being. Um, And that's a huge paradigm shift, right? The idea that you would be playing this game as one person, the shift from we to me, is it cannot be overstated how uh, ground-shaking that was. And let me be clear, as a caveat, there are many forms that uh, storytelling and storytelling games have taken outside of this. This is one evolutionary path, but that's where we get the term role-playing game in a large sense. And so if we look how that progressed, role-playing game, of course, is not just applied to tabletop anymore. RPGs are a thriving video game genre. And why they're called RPGs is because video game designers looked at role-playing games from the tabletop space and took deep and direct inspiration, which resulted in both the Japanese-style turn-based games that we see, JRPGs, and the uh, more Western North American conceptualization of what that turned into with your Bethesda-style role-playing games. Um, And those are RPGs. But what's so strange about the term is that it's a vestige of sorts. Why are those particular games called role-playing games and not, let's say, the action-adventure games like your Banjo-Kazooie's, your platformers like Celeste? Like, you are a character. You're playing a role. You're doing specific things and watching their story. But those aren't RPGs because they don't share the design legacies of those computer games, as they were, uh, which were based on the precedent that was set by role-playing games, which was developed in opposition to war games. So that's where RPG comes from and is a storytelling game that doesn't have those structures of resolution still a game. That's where the question comes up because a game in traditional understanding has an objective, right? There is something that you are trying to do. And I know that Tom and I both come from board game backgrounds, so we've played hundreds probably of games that all have their different ways to win. Cooperative, competitive, whatever, you're almost always still trying to win. As Dr. Reiner Knizia said, the goal of the game is to win, but it is not the winning that is important, it is the goal. But there's no winning <laughs> in this game that I've yeah. made. This, it's totally separate. It's, uh, it's got more in common with um, lineage from like drama games or improv theater. Uh, than it does with this uh, this fighting, this victory, this vindication. Um, and there is a sizable contingent of people who feel that if there is no objective, no victory, no win condition, then it's not a game anymore. That's, it's interesting because I wasn't even thinking about this. I've never really thought about this idea from the idea of there being an objective. I, I always kind of approach it. Is there some sort of outside force that is, uh, you know, adding to what the players are doing? So the dice or the cards or other players themselves or some other outside force. 
Um, and to me, that was always like, well, okay, a game kind of needs that. But now that you kind of put it that way, that a game needs an objective, that kind of, because I see what the objective of this game, what your game is. Um, and so I kind of, okay, that, that, I, that's extremely helpful. So I want to hear it from you, though. What is the objective of your game? And here we used to fly your objective. Okay, let's let's be clear. This is something that is shared many among many RPGs, including combat-driven ones, but it's more subtle in them. Mm-hmm. The objective of Here We Used to Fly is to tell a compelling story with the people that you're with. Um, is that a part of almost every role-playing game? Yes, but it might yeah. not be the focus. You know, there's nothing wrong with games that are about the tactics and 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 trying to solve that puzzle of the battle or the perplexing um, dungeon room that you've come across. Those aren't necessarily driven by story, but many contemporary understandings of, let's say, Dungeons and Dragons are. Um, people want to be invested. People want to explore their arc of their character's life. And that common thread is still present in games like Here We Used to Fly. Yeah, I think yours is just being very, very clear to the text. Like this is, and it's a shared experience. So, so yeah, uh, the the game itself, though, those experience are broken down into two different styles. All right, you've got your your child, your child, your your kid, your youth experience. I don't want to. There's a lot of teenagers who go to theme to music theme parks. All right, <laughs> all right, but then adults. How does the game vary between these two styles? That's a that's a pretty good question, um, and it's a question that we've thought a lot about. One thing I'll say right up front is that we very deliberately designed the playbooks so that they could be a playbook for your childhood half of your character or your adult half. Each playbook is uh, named after a sort of personality trait or disposition, like curious or angry or content or um, passionate or weird. (laughs) And we wanted very deliberately to let people take those elements, those ways of being, and explore what they are in different eras. So what's the difference between the childhood and adult phases? Um, Well, first of all, your story is going to be influenced based on how old you are. <laughs> that's just, you know, that's that's unavoidable. So kids, we write in the book that when you're role-playing as a kid, the temptation is just to do like a silly voice, a little, little high-pitched thing, and like be just kind of a weirdo. And kids are weirdos. But like the biggest element, I think, that we want to emphasize for role-playing as kids is just that you have big feelings, you know? You're, you're, joyful, you're scared, you're, uh, you're angry about something that happened. And that all just is, it's all mixed up together in a strange cocktail of levels always just being at a 10. Um, so our advice in the book during that era is just to like, go with those emotional um, cores but also to like remember that joy is a part of the experience as well. You are a kid at a theme park, and if you get too wrapped up in the drama, you forget that. Um, yeah, one thing that I'll mention, I guess my last little point here, is that there's a certain temptation to pull in adults as this part of the narrative. 
uh, you might want to throw in the barker to address one of your kids, the carnival barker who singled you out. You might want to uh, pull in like a ride operator to be a part of the direct narrative. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we decided the most important thing as kids was just to see it from kids' eyes. And that meant really like getting in that headspace of like, I'm at the theme park. This is where I am. This is what's going on, which means that we've decided the best method is to treat those adults like Charlie Brown adults, kind of like, oh, what's what they're saying is communicated. But for all our intents and purposes, all you hear is like, um, yeah, so the distinction is there, uh, but it's also not. We tried to leave it open. Oh, sorry, Tom. I did think of one more thing. Okay, um, no, no. Get, hit it. Hit me with it. Okay. So one thing I didn't realize until playtesting was that depending on which playbook you picked for which era, your story is more likely to be one of like personal growth and victory over uh, who you struggled to grow from, or it's going to be one of tragedy. Because if you're like a happy kid, and then you're this angry adult, something horrible happened to you. <laughs> and I don't think yeah. we even like realized that until we were playing through it. And we went, oh, that turns the dials in a huge way. Um, and so that was really, that spoke to the importance of playtesting, because we didn't even realize that the game could be used in that way. And then when we saw it, we said, that's great. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. It's, yeah, you don't, you think about like, it's, it's hard to imagine exactly what you were like as a kid, but people change, they experience stuff. So I think being able to explore what that means through the, the lens of a theme park is kind of interesting. So that's the dream. <laughs> that's the dream. So I, I'm going to actually jump ahead a little bit. Um, and I'm, I'm going to come back to our, uh, this one question, but I want to, could this game be played with kids? All right. So I understand that not every game is meant to be played with kids, but could kids play this game? The reason I ask that is because I have kids. I, I like to try different things with them. And I'm thinking about this. I'm like, I'm not a kid, but I can role play a kid. Could a kid role play an adult? I don't know. I wanted to ask you from your perspective as the person who designed this game, did you have thoughts on that? This is actually a question that I've thought about a lot, but don't have answers for. I, I did not have available kid playtesters okay, in the yeah. process, <laughs> so I don't I don't actually know how yeah. uh, how the response would be. All I can say, uh, I've worked with kids like a decent amount. Like I said, former board game teacher, families would come in. Uh, I used to be a camp counselor at one point, and just kids will constantly surprise you with their understandings of things and what they bring to the table. So I I am very reluctant to pigeonhole what I think kids would do with it um, because I want to know as much as you do. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I actually will. I will let you know. I will shoot you an email. I think I'm going to play this game with my two daughters. So and I will let you know oh, please how, that, do. how that goes. No, I, I yeah, so I think this will be really... I, because this is a perfect type of game. You start talk, going back to this idea of what is a role-playing game. And I think kids connect with role-playing games like this so much more because what are they good at? They are good at making things up and creating story. And games that create story are great. So that's what I found as a parent. So I, this kind of fits right there. So That's exciting. 
Just throw that out there. So, all right. So this other question, uh, you do have a lot of information here about safety tools. Uh, you're exploring a lot of different things. Uh, but you did, you, you say, there's one of the things that you say is, you say, hey, ask your players, should our story be about discovery or loss? All right. I really like this because it seems like it's a safety tool from a storytelling perspective and not just one of those kind of general things like, well, what, what don't you want to talk about? It's more of a safety tool. It's like, what kind of story do we want to tell? So I, I'm trying to like how to phrase this properly. So how did you decide to put that, make that a safety tool and not just another prompt? And what are ways that safety tools that designers often overlook then? Right. Um, I think what's missed is how much safety tools can be an opportunity to set tone and just make sure everyone's just as excited about the game as you are. Um, While I think more and more designers are aware of the value of safety tools in ensuring that everyone has an experience that is like consenting and positive ultimately, especially with darker tones, I think the idea is still growing, still, still upcoming that safety tools and tone discussions particularly tone discussions, are how you can shape the experience right off the bat to be what you want to be. I see a lot of people asking, how do I run a horror game? My players are so goofy and will just like make a joke out of everything. And the only answer, I mean, this this was discussed way back in Dread. Uh, the only answer for how to have like a particular tone or environment is to talk about the fact that you want that tone and environment. If you want to run a horror game, you have to have an open and candid conversation with your players that that's what you're going for. And so if people have a particular idea about how they want Here We Used to Fly to be played, well, there's literally no better way to reach that consensus than to talk about it and make sure you're all on the same page. I'm not I am far from the only person to integrate safety mechanics and tone ideas in this way. And uh, every design that I've made is deeply indebted to people who came before. But as a case study, let's briefly uh, talk about For the Queen, which again is uh, designed by Alex Roberts. For the Queen is, I said earlier, my favorite kind of uh, tabletop role-playing game mechanism is having leading questions. For the Queen is a deck of cards of leading questions, developing your character's relationship with a queen who you love. And that's all you get in some ways. The questions will ask you things like, what did the queen do that strained your trust? Or like, uh, how do you see the queen as beautiful? Um, and every question adds new intrigue, new shapes, to the story as it's unfolding. It's really a genius design. But something that gets overlooked in that is central for the Queen's design is an X card that sits right in the middle of the table. And many of you will know what an X card is if you're listening to this. An X card is just a little card in the middle of the table, has an X on it, you touch it, and whatever was just said is not part of the story. It is removed from play, it never happened. But in For the Queen, 
things are designed so that that X card can be used very liberally, so that it doesn't have to be this big scary thing to say, "Oh, I don't want to do that." Especially because people are worried about rocking the boat that way. It can be hard to step up, and so not only does for the queen say, "Ah,、oh, touch it for anything." If, if, like if it's a small thing, just like. Maybe maybe you just don't think that's interesting. <laughs> Shift the tone. Oh, I don't want that question. That's not. I don't. That's just not interesting.、Uh, X. Whatever. Let's move on. That level of comfort and familiarity with that tool makes it also so much more useful as its intended、uh, purpose for safety. It de、uh, de risks、uh, and and makes it familiar and and easy to reach for. So. I think that kind of innovation in integration between the tools that you're using and the play in progress—that's that's a rich field for development. Absolutely. So,、uh, as we kind of start to wrap up here, how can people support you and get this game? So.、Uh, I believe this podcast is being released like a day before the Kickstarter it campaign. It is. It、ends. will be there. <laughs> so,、uh, if you're listening to this,、uh, the Kickstarter campaign is up until something like midnight on the 15th of November, 2022,、um, and you are welcome to jump in. Even a one dollar pledge will get you the full rules of the game. That gorgeous art I mentioned earlier is available in the、uh, the full PDF, which comes with an audio book,、uh, and. That'll be around in a few months. After that, we'll have the game up on itch.io and DriveThruRPG. If you want to check it out,、uh, my itch.io is a smoldering lighthouse. Itch.io, which is very difficult to remember. So feel free to search up my game "Knots in the Sky," which is a duet that is better known than some of my other works. <laughs> oh, I、uh, can't quite hear you there, Tom. That's because I'm muted because my neighbor is using some sort of power tool outside. <laughs> Perfect podcast.、Time. I know, right? So no, I, we will also include all of those in our show notes. So everybody, nice, just click them. So、uh, I also like to close out with this one question that kind of I don't put in my notes. All right. So if there was like your favorite thing. That you design for here we used to fly. What is that favorite thing when you're writing this? A sentence. It could be just you know a prompt, something. You're like, you know what? I'm really clever. What is that <laughs> thing? Okay, here's here's me at my most self indulgent. Okay, I、uh, before the、um, game text begins, there's a poem、uh, that I wrote that leads into it. I.、Uh, I feel like there's a lot of game designers who are also poets because there's a through line with the brevity、uh, but potency that you need from poetry,、uh, and so there's、uh, there's a poem with the same title as the game that precedes it, and I think it does a lot to set the mood. I asked my co-designer, "Hey, can we put this in?" and he was like, "We better." <laughs> so that's that's my secret favorite part is this、uh, this thematic tie-in. That's awesome. I think it's good. It's right at the beginning. It's you know sets the tone like you were saying. So perfect. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for joining me today. So, thank you for having me. 
This has been great. I will say this was ac- this was super informative. I'm glad that you gave me the deep dive on <laughs> what is a role playing game for real. Like this is that was that was great. So folks, definitely go check out uh, here. We used to fly uh, when you're listening to this on Monday. So Kurt, where can people follow you on social media if they want to? I can be found at Kurt Reffling on Twitter. Really went for a straight shot on that one. Yep. Uh, that's wrestling with an F as in Foxtrot. People think it's wrestling sometimes, which is very funny, but not correct. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, again, on uh, all of the games that both I and my partner have made can be found at a-smoldering-lighthouse.itch.io. Perfect. Well, Kurt, once again, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Folks, uh, this has been the RPG Academy's show and tell. Definitely go check out Here We Used to Fly. And always, do not forget, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize. But there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook Or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.